The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. This is a time when we can talk together about that journey toward heaven. There is only one road to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, all roads lead to the same place. All roads lead to the judgment bar of God. But we're told in Scripture that only those in Jesus Christ will be able to enter that celestial city. He is the one way. Why would I say that? Because only by the precious blood of Jesus can we escape from this prison planet. This is, you know, a prison planet. We are shut off from the rest of the universe. This is the one place the cancer of sin has sprung up. It cannot be allowed to pass. And it was to this place that Jesus came and offered us an escape route. Now, if you were in a building and it was on fire... And I came into you and I said, there is only one exit by which we can get out of this building and live. Would you stand and argue with me about whether there was perhaps more than one exit that would allow us to escape that burning building? Of course not. You'd say, come on, let's go quickly. Let's get out of here. Why? Because you want to live. You don't want to die. Well, there is only one exit from this prison planet because it will burn. And that exit is called Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the exact representation of God the Father. We serve only one God. He expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But these... Three are all God, one God, coexistent, omniscient, filled with love and compassion for the people who are dying on this prison planet. And I am driven day by day as I come to this radio broadcast to lift up to you the path Jesus said, I am the way, meaning I am the path. Meaning you have to walk my way if you are going to escape. I come earnestly trying to reach your heart, to awaken you to follow the path of Jesus Christ. Now you all have your opinions. You all have your beliefs. But let me be very clear. Opinions and beliefs 
have not saved any person. Only the truth saves a person. If you believe something that is not taught in the Scripture, if you believe in the traditions of man, or you believe in the traditions of your family, that's all fine and well. It may make you very comfortable, but it will not rescue you from this prison planet before it burns. Jesus said, I am the way or the path. I am the truth. And I am the life. Now, I want to pray with you. I'm going to share some very important things with you today. Life-changing things. I want the Holy Spirit to come and quicken our hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come to this time set apart to speak about you, I plead with you, would you open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing? Would you give us understanding? Would you make us utterly uncomfortable with the slowness of our own hearts? Would you quicken us by your Spirit to be earnest and passionate as we seek after you, Jesus? I pray in your mighty name. Amen. I'm going to begin today with another story of George Railton. I want to share this story with you today because, again, it will point out the tragedy that happened in a church organization and how that change began to take place and what the result of that change has been. And it's very apparent to you today. It's very clear to see what this organization has become today, which is a far cry from what its founders desired it to be. The story begins... Two very devout and intensely earnest Christian men were born on the same day, July 6. But there were hundreds of years separating them. One was John Huss of Bohemia, the other George Railton of the Salvation Army. Both were men who held their convictions sacred in their heart concerning Jesus and every conscious and thought of their heart was the obligation they bore to their generation to lift up Jesus Christ. Both had very stormy careers. That of John Huss ended in martyrdom, while Railton's included a prolonged period of 30 years or more of standing quite alone in a movement he dearly loved, in which he was treated as a foreigner and an outsider, often being given the silent treatment. By the time George Railton appeared on the scene, the religious world 
had so adjusted itself to mediocrity that when it discovered a man who felt that his food, his clothing, his sleep, and his family were all subordinated to this one thing I do, it could not help but to conclude that he was beside himself. And yet Christ's own brethren had at one time said the same thing about Jesus. And so it's not surprising that those who love Jesus Christ and his kingdom above and beyond every other person or thing, it's not surprising they would be continued, considered as fanatics, a bit touched in the head. Older men shook their wise heads over one so young as Realton, who believed in praying until his knees were petrified and preaching until he was too hoarse to make himself heard. The life story of George Scott Railton is a fascinating one. He was born of missionary parents who were very decided in their ideas about how to live the Christian life. It may have been the high quality of Christianity that George saw in his parents that caused him to to be shy of paying the price of becoming an out-and-out Christian. Oh, he went to church. Had you asked him, he would have said, Yes, I love Jesus. But he was not sold out to Jesus. He had not entered full consecration. And at the age of seven, he did his best to elude God. He did not want to make that confrontation with one who demanded total self-denial and sacrifice. Now, today, most young people don't have that problem because they don't see anyone in their life who is really sold out to Jesus. They see cultural Christians who, who go and enjoy the services and make their social connections who perhaps have an emotional or sentimental connection with the church. Perhaps they even give offerings or pay tithe. But not really sold out. He managed to live his life seemingly safe from divine interference until at age 10 he became very ill with a flu. Now this flu in that day was extremely dangerous because they did not have antibiotics to treat it. And many were dying. George had overheard the adults talking about this insidious illness. And as he was lying in bed, he began to think about his position with God. He had been quite at odds with God, not really wanting to face his condition. He knew he was not right with God. He was only 10. But I want to tell you, when I was 10 years old, I knew right from wrong. And I knew that I wanted to serve Jesus with all my heart. 
I knew I wanted to be a pastor. In fact, I started preaching soon after the age of 10. But as often happens, worldliness crept in in my own personal life. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I finally made that full consecration to Jesus. Back to the story, Railton had always argued like the dying thief that he would prepare to meet his maker upon his deathbed, but but this kind of flu was known to cause the patient to become unconscious, and then they would die. This deep-thinking lad of ten years of age knew that he dare not leave the question of his salvation lest he pass out and die before he could make a sensible commitment of himself to Jesus. So one night while his parents left him at home, George finally made a decision to utterly and totally pledge himself to the Lord. And that night he was born again He was born from above. There was great joy that flooded his soul. It was such that he got up out of bed and danced around the room, forgetting his pain and his miserable feelings. The boy had no question about his acceptance with his heavenly father. And he also believed that after this new birth, there was an experience of complete total consecration resulting in heart purity, which he believed was available to all. Yielding his life totally to his maker, George received the blessing of a cleansed heart at the age of 15. This experience proved to be genuine, as his whole afterlife illustrated. Now some of you are scratching your heads and saying, what is pastor talking about? Well, many of the old timers, John Wesley and others, believed that salvation was granted when a person was born from above. And the sign that they were born from above was that they left all sin A person who habitually walks in sin has not been born from above and is not saved. These old-timers believed, and, and right up until very recently, the church taught that one could leave their sins and be completely cleansed, transformed, changed. That is, that's what the evangelical church taught. The Catholic Church has never taught that. They've always taught that salvation was controlled by the Church. That when a person took the Eucharist, they were infused then with grace and enabled to live a godly life. But not a life without sin. And so you have purgatory where a person goes after they die, if they are committed to Christ, 
and there they suffer to burn out the last of their sin. That's not what these old-timers believed. They believed that a person could be made clean, could be washed, could be made whole, that they no longer walked in sin. They secondly believed that as a person lived out this righteous life, there would be inward struggles with character traits, with, with wicked thoughts, with perhaps even an evil temper, that that would cause a person to come to a, a crisis point in his life where he finally would say to the Lord, Lord, you have given me that new birth and I rejoice in it, but I need more than that. I need to be given a new and pure heart. This was called the second touch or the second work of the Holy Spirit. It's obtained in the same way initial salvation is obtained. It is all a work of God. It is a work of grace. Now, quickly, I have to define this word grace because it has been totally corrupted in our modern church. Charis in the Greek, Greek for what we use for grace, literally means the divine influence of God for righteousness. In the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul tells us that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to wickedness. So grace in Scripture is never a covering for a person who is declared righteous but not made righteous. That is very much a Gnostic teaching. It is a pagan teaching. It is not biblical. In the Scriptures, the Gospel teaches that we leave our sin as a free gift of Jesus Christ and that grace is given to us which enables us to live a righteous life. It is not self-help. It is the power of God moving in our heart that releases us from the captivity of the devil. And we are now free to walk in wholeness of life. Many of you who walk as Christians today walk in Christianity that is of the flesh and not of the spirit. You work very hard at doing what you're supposed to be doing. It does not flow naturally from your heart, and the result is your heart is often cold or lukewarm. There is not the fire of God in your spirit. There is not the earnest, eager desire for Jesus. Instead, he is a far-off, distant, sometimes sentimental thought. That is not what Christianity is about. The gospel of Jesus is the most powerful force that has ever been known in the world. When the scriptures describe it, they use the word dunamis, the power of God. That's the same word from which we get the word dynamite in the English. It is the explosive power of God to transform a man or woman's life. Now, if your life has not been transformed, if you're still walking 
in the old ways of sin and calling yourself a Christian, I'm telling you, you're missing out on the most exciting journey that life has to offer. You're missing out on the joy of being a Christian. You are of all people most miserable because you still find your satisfaction in the entertainment of the day, in the in the filth of the culture. And there's a darkness in your soul. There is a a sadness in your spirit because you don't have that joyful connection with Jesus that sets you free, that puts your feet to dancing. Instead, you dance to the devil's tune. And you want to know about all of the wicked people of our age, the Kardashians and the like, or the football or the baseball. One man who calls himself a Christian, he and his wife will fly anywhere in the country to see their favorite team play. They will spend thousands of dollars a year on their beloved sports. But very little for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, the church is a social place. It's a, it's a club. You pay a little bit of dues. You enjoy all the entertainment and all the benefits. Frankly, for them, the church is a hobby. You know, some people are so involved in bicycling, they have to have the right trek bike and they have to have the right clothing, the right helmet. They go on these long rides. They they take great joy in going with others on tours of the country. Their life centers around riding the bike. Others, it's kayaking. I could easily be a, a biker or a kayaker. I love motorcycles. I would I would love to go tour Europe on a motorcycle. Other people are are into collecting things. Crocheting or some such thing and and it absorbs them. That's their life. Jesus Christ is just a hobby for many of you. It's what you're accustomed to. It's where your social network is. It's it's what you enjoy doing. You like the music and you like the inspirational preaching and you like the friendship with people. My brother, my sister, that's not what Christianity's about. Oh, those may be side benefits. But the gospel is about laying your life down for Jesus. It's about sacrificing your life to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It absorbs all of your time, all of your money, all of your interest. It's eternity we're concerned with. It's the man Jesus, the God of King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's Jesus we're concerned about and his kingdom. And we don't want to go there alone. So we're going to gather as many of God's sheep together as we can. And together we're going to go spend eternity together with him. That for me is exciting. If your faith is simply going to church and enjoying the social connections, you might better go to another club where they have better entertainment. 
It says, George Realton received the blessing of a cleansed heart. That is a heart that is totally pure before God. Did you know you can receive that cleansed heart? You can wake up in the morning and not have a guilty conscience. Be absolutely at peace. Joy in your heart. Singing songs of glory. That's what happened with George Railton. Four or five years later, cholera began to rage in the area where George Railton lived. And few wished to endanger their lives by contact with these dying people. But George's parents, in their commitment to Jesus Christ, could not escape the conviction that their duty lay in giving themselves to the dying. And in a short time, they both also caught the cholera and died, leaving George as an orphan. The time arrived when he had to face the world. He was no longer a schoolboy, and so he went to work for a relative in his shipping business where his Christian principles were put to the test. He could not consent to write the letters for the company, for he felt the truth was being sacrificed for the sake of prospective sales. He would not lie for his, for his boss. So this plucky young man was dismissed and soon found himself adrift in a vast world. Times like this, the printed page of God's Word is used at those crossroads when we don't know which way to go. And a booklet was given to him by William Booth. He was now in his early 20s. And the inspirational words found a place of lodging in George Railton's heart. He had tried the Methodist Church, but his intensity of feeling about soul-winning found little there to kindle the flame of devotion, which was already beginning to warm his whole being. George lost little time in making contact with the Booths. The attraction was immediately mutual. They found in this down-to-business Christian young man just what they were needing at that moment, and the young man discovered in these two warm-hearted, mature Christians an unusual sense of unity of purpose. He went to live in their home for eleven years while he worked as their personal assistant. He found Mrs. Booth especially, one whose heart beat as his own on this subject of entire devotion to God. And just a brief aside, I have found that also. I I enjoy very much the sermons of George, of both of the Booths. But frankly, I find Mrs. Booth to be much more inspirational and much deeper. And you're going to see what happens after she dies. Now, George Realton was very gifted 
He found ample opportunity during those early days in the army for for writing articles, challenging articles, in which he could lift up the ideals and the aims of the Salvation Army. It was George Railton who contributed to the Salvation Army its military language and its soldier-like attitude. He himself was prepared to live out of the barracks life, demonstrating that there is a warfare in which a Christian must engage if he is to pluck souls from the burning. This young saint scarcely cared to give a thought about what he put on. Mrs. Booth had to more than once rebuke him about his appearance. Sleep and food were mere incidentals compared to the importance of the work in which he was engaged. How he enjoyed the counsels of war he had with with General Booth and his young son, Bramwell. The Booths eventually sent George to pioneer in the United States for the Salvation Army. Souls were won as the invader took over city after city. Hardship and toil meant very little. But he was not to be there long, for the much-needed recruit was recalled to help at London headquarters. Often he would stay up until the small hours of the morning, working in the office with Bramwell, and then snatching a few hours' sleep on a bench before beginning a new day. The Salvation Army was at that time receiving harsh treatment from mobs, and the authorities were not sympathetic. They did not like these strange intruders into the religious life of Britain. Some were imprisoned, others were beat up, injured. Yet new soldiers were daily enlisting under that blood-and-fire banner of the Salvation Army. But none of this moved George. Deliverance from every thought of self-interest, he once remarked, and from every particle of fear as to what men can do, which fits people to pass through dark and hard periods. He was unmoved by these things. In the meantime, George surprised some of his friends by choosing to marry Mary Ann Parkland. They didn't judge him to be the marrying kind. But Marianne, the only daughter of a free church minister and a man of property and wealth, she braved her father's disapproval in becoming a part of the Salvation Army. And she had begun to play the tambourine in open-air evangelism. The two had first met in an all-night of prayer at London, and George had escorted Marianne to her home after the service. Right from the beginning, they devoted their time to Jesus. They had much in common. They were finally married and began engaging together in the work of the mission. And Marianne proved in every way to be a helpmate for her rugged husband. At first, there had been opposition on the part of her father who objected to her marriage with a person from the Salvation Army. But an hour interview with Railton convinced him of the man's integrity. Others felt the same. 
A friend, an old scientist, asked Marianne to visit him and astonished her with the question, What have you ever done that you should marry such a man? Then looking at her very sternly, he said, Let me tell you, that man is absolutely unique. I am not religious, and I study men from a psychological point of view only. I went to see the Salvation Army, and I found a man for whom I have a profound admiration, and whom I consider as one in a generation. On her honeymoon, the young wife was to have her first encounter with George's intense love for the souls of others. She had thought these ten days would be a relaxation for the man she loved, but instead they were filled up with working for the salvation of those who came to visit them. She discovered, too, how little he cared about their first dwelling place, leaving it to others to choose for them. Marianne was at first quite shocked, and wondered what her friends would think of her humble abode. But that was not all. She was soon to discover that her husband would never spend a Christmas at home, for he wished to follow in the footsteps of him who left his father's home to spend Christmas with those he came to save. In spite of the many separations and untold hardships Marianne experienced as the wife of a Salvation Army commissioner, she could still say after thirty years of married life, an extraordinary affection came into our hearts. I almost worshipped him. I never thought that any human being could be like him. I know no two people who were nearer to each other than we. The one thing that bothered her about her husband was that, as she puts it, he was absolutely determined to kill himself with his overwork. It seemed pretty certain, however, that as the years passed, Marianne came to share her husband's belief that the more we follow Christ, the better we shall get on, and the worse we shall be despised and hated by others. The above statement was written to a letter to a Colonel Clyborne, who was to later marry one of General Booth's daughters. Afraid that the young Colonel was in danger of catering too much to public opinion in order to gain publicity, he continues, I'm certain the army is being crushed by the perpetual series of meetings to extol it to the skies, and I dread the effect of these reports showing the introduction of these genteel whores of magistrates and celebrities to our platform. In a letter to the Booths, he wrote, The simple truth is, we cannot gain the apostolic results we desire without the apostolic price. We are paying the price in full. I firmly believe, and if so, God cannot fail to supply all of our need. He satisfied me yesterday that no matter what flood of anguish and shame we might have to go through, He would keep us and give us according to our faith after it all. It is not according to our strength or our wisdom or our ability or even our efforts, but it is according to our faith. 
George Realton. He viewed the life of a soul winner with all of its denials and hardships in a light vein. Writing in an autograph book of a young person, he said, the life of a soul saver is the grandest, merriest, strangest life that can be lived on earth. The life of Jesus lived all over again in us. It will cost you all, but it will be a good bargain at that. Mrs. Booth died of cancer in 1890. Her son, Bramwell, became his father's assistant. As time went on, George Railton saw with dismay certain tendencies beginning to creep into his beloved army that smacked to him of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The first departure he noticed was the business ventures in which the general and his son were engaged. Another was the rich, politically influential being asked to appear on their platforms at their meetings. But the most distasteful of all to Railton was the Army's involvement in the insurance business. At a World Congress of the Salvation Army, when many of her soldiers gathered from all over the world, George Railton appeared barefoot and in sackcloth. The audience only smiled tolerantly as they watched this unusual man take his place on the platform. They knew of, of this zealous believer in Christ, but they were not prepared for what followed. When testimony time came, George Railton stood up and began to speak. The stenographers taking down the messages were too stunned to even record his exact words, and so it was that few could remember precisely what he had said. But the grist of what was said was that the Salvation Army was departing from self-denial and the simplicity of living by faith thus resorting to fleshly methods. After speaking, the rugged commissioner held up a paper which was an announcement of an insurance scheme. Putting it under his feet, he stomped upon it with disdain. And then George Railton sat down. There were a few hearts, doubtless, which beat in unison with his but there were others who were utterly dismayed. The general and his son Bramwell later endeavored to exhort an apology from Railton, but the pilgrim soldier knew he had acted solely out of deep sorrow of heart as he watched the organization he said had so dearly loved beginning to major in social work and introducing various forms of compromise with the world. Was not Israel at one time at the very same place as the Salvation Army? They had had God in the pillar of fire to go before them by night. He had stood so close that he was the cloud by day. He had supplied them with manna and had known where to command the rock to yield refreshing water in that desert land to quench the thirst of hundreds of thousands. 
divinely appointed judges had represented God to Israel for many years, and the Almighty had always been enough. Samuel the prophet pleaded with them, but to no avail. And so God gave them what they wanted, kings in costly array, armies with more sophisticated weapons and chariots and horsemen. But God warned them through his prophets that their decision would be costly. They had not rejected Samuel, but God. Had their divine leader not furnished a table in the wilderness? Had he not been the commander-in-chief, the Lord of hosts, calling all the forces of nature to assist the wandering, helpless band of Israelites in their warfare against foes that far outnumbered them? At the time of the reign of Solomon, Israel was at its height as far as luxurious buildings were concerned. Forbidden wives from many heathen nations occupied a prominent place in the king's sumptuous court. Then, too, Solomon indulged in commerce in horses and chariots, which trade Moses had forbidden Israel. He said, Woe to them who go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses and trust in chariots. Isaiah wrote as he saw the same evils of which Moses had forewarned. Silver and gold, too, were plentiful. But after Solomon died, the people revolted under the heavy taxation. Outward splendor always makes its demands upon the common people. The kingdoms of Israel were started downhill, ending in destruction and captivity under Babylon. Now where was her purported glory? Her drift had been so gradual that the nation had not recognized the terrible decline until too late. So often the history of a denomination, once existing only by its faith in God, reveals in its degeneration. Finally, it's whole complex pattern is merely an imitation of the church which has lost its first love. Railton did not want his beloved army to follow this tragic pattern. He doubtless did not grasp to the full extent the financial problems of that growing army, nor did he have the balance necessary for organizing so vast an organization but did God wish that group to expand so rapidly? This will not be known until the great day. Once when Oswald Chambers thought of praying in a certain number for a Bible school, he, refra he refrained for fear he might be asking for that institution to last longer than the fulfilling of God's purposes required. George Railton was to suffer long and hard for his outspoken objections. He was not martyred like John Huss or like many other of God's servants. But there are other ways to punish a follower. 
he was given the silent treatment, to be set aside after having entered so fully into the innermost councils of the early Salvation Army. This was a very heavy cross for him. Explanations were made by headquarters which hinted that the ardent soul-winner had overdone in his zeal and was a bit affected in his mind. Father and son were very secretive about the whole affair, and George was warned not to speak to others about his convictions. He served faithfully, and I'm not going to finish. He served faithfully in the Salvation Army until the time of his death, but he was marginalized and sidelined and completely removed from the upper levels of leadership because he would not agree with the Salvation Army becoming a social institution. He would not agree with bringing in very prominent people who could buy their money, buy their way in. He did not approve of the entertainment He had only one heart, and that was to fight the battle for the lost and the dying. I've watched denominations go through the same thing. I've watched and listened as churches have left their charter. I ask a young pastor of a mega church, is your church a worldly church? And his quick answer was, oh yes, it is a worldly church. I said, how can you say that? How can you pastor a worldly church? He said, well, pastor, we've got to bring them in some way. And so we bring them in with our music, our wild music. We bring them in with our drama and our skits and our stage work. And then hopefully, while they're there, they're going to become interested in who Jesus is. And I said, if they become interested in who Jesus is, will you teach them that all sin can be broken and that they must be crucified with Christ, that they must sacrifice their life to become a follower? Oh, no, Pastor, I'm not going to tell them that. I'm going to tell them that Jesus died on Calvary and that his blood covers them, that they're righteous in Jesus that they cannot stop sinning until they die. But they can live in the wonderful gift of knowing that they're loved by God and God will bless them and prosper them. I looked at this man with great sadness. And I said, My dear brother, you are a pimp. You are a pimp. You are whoring God's people. He won't talk to me now, and I understand why. My heart was broken by his wickedness. I pray for him. It's obvious I will not be asked to speak in his church. I don't say that with pride. I say that with great sorrow of heart. You answer for yourself today. Do you go to a church that has been infiltrated 
by darkness? The Salvation Army today is merely a social institution. It's highly respected among the rich and the powerful of the world. They have gained the approval of the world. Nobody quite does charity like the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army today is not known for the message that Mrs. Booth would have brought of being born again, of having a pure heart, of walking clean before God, of being humble. After her death, her husband was seduced by the world. And the result is the Salvation Army is not even a shadow of what it used to be. About the only time most of us even hear or see about the Salvation Army is when they ring their bell begging for money at Christmas time. breaks my heart. I want to read some scripture for you in these last five minutes. It's not easy to hear because it's the literal translation of the Greek. It has not been smoothed out. It's the translation that is done by this wonderful Greek scholar by the name of uh, Dr. Lavender. If you're interested in more information, go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you'll find all the information. I'm going to read First John, the first chapter. That which was from a beginning, that which we have heard and that, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which our hands handled concerning the word of life, indeed the life became known, and we have seen and bear witness and report to you the eternal life which was with the Father was revealed to us. That which we have seen and have heard we report to you, so that you also may continue to have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we are writing to you in order that our joy may stand as having been completed. And this is the message that we have heard from him and report back to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him, none whatsoever. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we may walk in darkness, we lie to ourselves and do not speak the truth. But if we may keep walking in the light just as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from every conceivable sin. If we may say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we may be in agreement with God with respect to our sins, he is faithful and righteous, so that he may remove the sins with reference to us and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. Do you have fellowship with a mere shadow of the Christian church? 
Or do you, in fact, consecrate your life wholly and completely to Jesus? Leaving all of your sin, being washed by the blood of Jesus, being made into a new person, where you are alive in Christ, where you have power in the gospel for the salvation of others. Is this how you live? Or are you a worldly Christian living in the shadow and not the reality? Lord Jesus, I lift up my brothers and sisters today and I ask for your great mercy. I ask that you will begin to stir our hearts and take all comfort from us that is of this world, that is of the flesh or of the devil. I ask that you would bring your people out into the light of your glory and your revelation. Lord, put such a hunger in the hearts of your people. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you. I've enjoyed being with you. I'll talk to you again soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy with great joy Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of